Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Ugh, I got in a fight on eBay with someone trying to sell a Rosie O'Donnell jacket over this. <laughs> wow. They were being really shady. Yourself with that comment. They were being shady. <laughs> All right. I'm ducking out, you're ducking out. Let's duck out together. See what it's all about. Ducking out, ducking out, ducking out, ducking out. Hi, and welcome to Diking Out, a podcast named after what Emily Dickinson was doing with her brother's wife. <laughs> I'm Carolyn Bergier. And I'm Sarah York. And today we're diking out with playwright and filmmaker Madeline Olneck about Emily Dickinson. Uh, Madeline has written 24 plays and three feature films, including her first one was Codependent Lesbian Space Aliens Seek Same, also The Foxy Merkins, and most recently, Wild Nights with Emily, uh, which she also directed and is out in theaters as of April 12th. It started Molly Shannon. I saw it and it's so great, you guys. I hope you go and see it. Just a couple quick announcements. We have a Diking Out at Stonewall show, April 29th. As you all know, uh, Sir Baby Girl's performing. We have Anna Fabrega and then past guests, Sydney Washington, Liz Glazer, and Brooke Arnold. So that'll be fun to have uh, everybody there together. Also, June 23rd is our live recording for Pride at Caveat in New York City. Uh, tickets are not on sale yet, but we just want you to mark your calendars, make your travel plans. If you're coming for World Pride, it's going to be a big fucking deal. <laughs> Uh, at least for me. If yes. not for you, for it me. It will be a big deal for everyone. Yeah. You will feel Carolyn's big deal energy radiating out of her spirit and her soul. Yeah. It's a big deal. Uh, another announcement, past guest of the podcast and friend of the podcast, Sarah Kennedy, yeah. has her own podcast and it's called Tadar. And some of you might guess what that's about, but it's all about uh, Taylor Swift and connecting the dots of all the clues that she leaves about her sexuality, because that's what Taylor Swift does. She's the clue master. Indeed. And Sarah is there for every single one of them, picking them up, putting Professor them in the scrapbook. Kennedy. Yeah. <laughs> Making her case with co-host, uh, another queer woman, Hattie Hayes. So it should be a lot of fun. And I believe that's out now. Uh, so look that up, Tadar. All right, we have a lot to cover, so we're going to get right into our topic of Emily Dickinson. I saw this movie last week. I enjoyed it so much. I went into it uh, not knowing much about Emily Dickinson, just knowing a little bit about, uh, you know, a mm-hmm. couple of her most famous poems, right? And then a little bit that there was maybe like some uh, question as to her sexuality. But then when I read um, the synopsis of the film, I thought this is just going to be this lesbian reimagining of Emily Dickinson. But that's not what it was at all. It's not just, uh, you know, me and my fan fiction mm-hmm. on screen. <laughs> Uh, so, Madeline, can you tell us a little bit? Sure. Um, my The first thing I ever heard about Emily Dickinson was that she was a recluse, and um, she hid her writing away, uh, which was weird because she had written, I guess, about 2,000 poems. Um, and um, 
someone once told me she was in college, I remember saying, well, she was an agoraphobe. Um, but it was just a very creepy image. Um, mm-hmm. And when I was in my 20s, I used to tell the joke that I wanted to be the Emily Dickinson of comedy. The joke <laughs> being, she is the most miserable person in the world. Um, I think there's a lot of Emily Dickinson in comedy now. Yeah. So. <laughs> so, so I had read this article in the New York Times. It was about how advances in science um, are allowing us to understand new things about historical figures. And there was a story about Beethoven and analyzing his hair for the, the DNA for mercury, which treats syphilis. You know, and that being connected to his deafness. And then there was a story about Emily Dickinson and um, the scholar who was working um, at with her her papers and looking at some erasures in, in the text um, that all had were around the name Susan. Um, and Which I'd like to note for our listeners uh, goes perfectly well with my conspiracy that Susan is the ultimate lesbian name. <laughs> I know so many lesbians. Never met a straight Susan, have you? I haven't. I don't think so. Not yet. Great. Okay, keep so, going. So it was really, I was kind of blown away because it was. It also talked about how the brother of Emily Dickinson, his mistress published Emily's first, uh, put together Emily's first book of poetry. And so, and she hated this woman who Emily was in love with, ultimately married Emily's brother. And so it was this whole big soap opera. And I thought, this is so different than anything I've ever heard about her. Um, And I was really kind of blown away. And then I started to read about her um, and learn about how, how the stories that we think of when we think of Emily Dickinson got so entrenched um, and why we didn't know this story. But it was actually for the historian Martha Nell Smith, excuse me, she's a scholar and Dickinson expert. She, for her, she was um, researching her graduate thesis and she thought, I'm going to write about, I'm going to challenge this uh, or look at this idea. People would say Emily Dickinson didn't want to be published um, during her lifetime. She thought, I'm going to investigate that. I'm going to look through mm-hmm. all of Emily Dickinson's papers to look for proof of that. I'm going to look at her letters. I'm going to start chronologically and read every letter she's written. So she started in the teenage years, and she started to come across these erasures, and they were around the name Susan, around affectionate references. Um, and then she started to realize, look at how many letters mm-hmm. there are to Susan. There were more letters to Susan more than any other correspondent of hers, and Susan lived right next door to her. So she was like, why is no, she was like, this is so strange. No one, she did, no one has even talked about this relationship. Why yeah. is mm-hmm. there, is it a big void cipher? You know, what is this about? So it's, it was just a really fascinating story for me uncovering um, uncovering all the ways in which um, this other story came to be. And and um, that was part of my interest. And then the last part I would say, when you were saying you, you only had heard uh, a couple of Dickinson poems, the thing that was great to me about reading about Emily Dickinson was I, I really 
wasn't interested in her at all because mm-hmm. what everything I heard about her was so creepy. And dark, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, why would I want to read her poems? And the only one I'd heard was uh, Because I Could Not Stop for Death. And yes. I just was like, okay, you know, I remember at the high school I read that and I was like, okay, death, I can't, she can't stop for it. I wasn't impressed. Uh, but her poems are really amazing and we have them as experiences in the movie. Yeah, that was one of the things I, one of the many things I loved about the movies too was getting this introduction to um, a lot mm-hmm. more of her work and it made me definitely want to uh, read more of her her poems and read these letters, which are all online at emilydickinson.org. Yes, in fact, the um, Martha Nell Smith, who, who worked with us on the movie, the reason they're all online is because she put them online. Wow. That's great. Did, and, was and, she able to put them on... Um, with like the corrected erasure? Yeah, yeah. Or and it- also the thing about the erasure is, here's the thing. The, the documents that Mabel Todd, the, Austin's mistress, handled were only um, Emily's letters to Austin about Susan. Okay. The other letters to Susan have just been sitting out there for years, totally unaltered, totally readable. And it's really... It's you read these letters and you're like, oh my God, they loved each other so much. So do you think that people overlooked it in the way that people assume that uh, two lesbians are just sisters? Like in public, you know how they, like like, even though all the evidence is there, it's like two women who don't look anything alike holding hands and people are like, oh, must be sisters. Right, right. Or, Or is it that people were that uninterested in queer narratives that they're like, yeah, let's just pretend this isn't happening or a little. Well, I think it was, I actually think it was harder for them at the time when they were alive than Mm -hmm. it has been for people in retrospect to uh, erase it. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that um, the, the thing is this too, is that Emily also was involved with this second woman Yes. And this daguerreotype surface that was confirmed, and I met with the collector of the daguerreotype, and it's a picture of Emily with her arm around this woman. And here's what really is making it that this can't be avoided anymore. That woman, after her um, affair with Emily, she moved to Europe and lived openly. She was openly gay in Europe. So that was a harder one to deny mm-hmm. yeah. Um, because of the, her subsequent history, it makes it, you can't be, say like, oh, Emily and Kate, that's the other woman. They were just, re- that's how women were friends that day, back in the day, you know? <laughs> yeah. So, kind of like Cara Delevingne and Taylor Swift. Yeah. You know? anyway. <laughs> it all comes back. <laughs> it, it does. <laughs> Continue. So, so I think that it was really, it was a really interesting set of circumstances that, pushed Sue into the background. Mm-hmm. Um, mainly, you know, the there were, it was rights issues and who had the papers, who had their hands on the papers, who could scholars get access to the papers through and what story did they have to tell to get access to those papers? Um, because Austin's mistress ended up with the trunk of Emily's papers in her possession. Yep. And she used that to negotiate her story wow. being told. And even though Emily never met with Mabel actually came over to Emily's house for several years because that's where she would meet Austin to have sex. Right, right. And and Emily would never come downstairs. She didn't want any part of it. It was 
you know. Which and, is such a funny part in the movie. Yeah. But that's where yeah. that whole, like, she wouldn't leave her room thing came from. It's like, yeah, because her brother was fucking his mistress in the basement. <laughs> like, of course she didn't leave room. It's awkward. I don't leave my room. When, if my roommates are home in the kitchen, I don't leave my room. Right. It's yeah. too weird. Right. I don't want to be involved in their business. Right. I get exactly. it, Emily. Exactly. So, so <laughs> Mabel didn't want there to be a Susan because she wanted to be the most important person to Emily. So even yeah. though Emily never laid eyes on her, and the only time Mabel saw Emily was when Emily was in her coffin. Um, Mabel invented herself as, you know, Emily's confidant and the person who understood her the best. And the, the scholars had to write her version in order to get access to those papers. And they just, it was too much. It was a gold mine that couldn't, they couldn't resist. How so. did they? Who, who has like ultimate possession of these papers? Well, today? now they're now they're in the possession both of Harvard and Amherst, split okay. that way because of the 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 two warring sides. Um, but now, I mean, with the with emilydickinson.org, you can see all mm-hmm. of her all of her uh, letters online. And we also collected some of our favorite. Well, I collected some of the I think some of the best ones in that packet that you guys probably got that historical packet. Um, although uh, our press person said we didn't need to send it to you because you weren't one of the ones who didn't believe me. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm easily convinced that believe, somebody's a lesbian. <laughs> we believe any and all lesbian theories. So yeah. you can float any name our way and we'll be like, you know what? I could see that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but there was something um, in The New Yorker. It was actually in 2008 where, so this biography, which was actually commissioned by Mabel, the mistress's daughter, um, took these papers to this scholar, Richard Sewell, and he wrote The Life of Emily Dickinson. And it's totally, it's a totally ridiculous book that's considered, you know, the defining biography. Um, Says things like, you know, despite the fact Mabel Todd never saw Emily Dickinson face to face, she understood her perhaps better than anyone. Um, (laughs) Just, you know, and so in a article in the New Yorker, and again, it was in 2008, they called that book The Critically Unsurpassed Biography of Emily Dickinson. And they talked about all these different theories about Emily Dickinson. And there was like, there's even been conjecture, something that they've been used to conjecture, but they were like, some people, you know, would even say she's a lesbian. Like, how ridiculous. Like, yeah. there's, look mm-hmm. at, there are all these different theories. One even says she's a lesbian. Like, and when I, it rubbed me the wrong way, that sentence. Yeah. And when I thought about it, it was almost like the writer was saying, this genius, Emily Dickinson, you know, they're, they're, why would she be a lesbian? If right. she was a genius, right? Like she how could, would, like someone can't be both of those things. Yeah, That's exactly. The implication. Yeah, exactly. I mean, which I think is offensive to all women, regardless yeah. of their sexuality. Absolutely. It's like, why would a genius want to be with women? Right. You know. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, but when men find that so attractive in women, right. they love yeah. women who are smarter than yeah, them and yeah, more talented totally. and funnier. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, so in, in this like erasure of her queerness, one of the craziest things you mentioned at the talk was this other movie being made around the same time. Yes. Uh, A Quiet Passion. Yes. And it stars Cynthia Nixon mm-hmm. as Emily Dickinson. Mm-hmm. It has a gay male director, no mention <laughs> I can't of her relationship took with that role. Right. I can't believe it. <laughs> that is crazy. Like with, with all the receipts out there. Right. Because you had been doing your play. So 
I this was a play, play first. in 1999. In 1999. Wow. Yeah. No, so but I mean, it was a different world then. Yeah. Um, I almost can't. And I got those, I got good reviews of the play then. But once again, it was Madeline Olnick imagines that Emily Dickinson is a lesbian. <laughs> um, like, but it's real. Like, I just imagine you like sitting on this pile of letters like, no, I'm not imagining anything. <laughs> but it's, it's kind of like, you know, recently someone, um, someone created a Wikipedia entry for me. I didn't ask them to. They, someone just did it. And under the personal line, it says... Madeline Olnick is a lesbian and lives in New York City. I read yep. that today. Okay. I did read it too. I read it and I actually burst out laughing because I was like, who wrote this? Yeah. That's her own, like, that's it. I know. <laughs> and it's like a hype, lesbian is a hyperlink. You can hover over it. If you I don't know that. what that means, yeah, it takes you to the lesbian page. And it also- I love that. That was the best part of it. And it also has a hyperlink for New York City. If yeah. you don't know what that is. Now people keep so, talking about this New York City and also lesbians. Yeah. Let me let me so, drill down in Wikipedia. So the the thing is is that obviously if someone wrote a, a play or a movie about me a hundred years from now, they would just look at Wikipedia and it <laughs> right. would say, but it's much more yeah. complicated. This was before identity existed. Mm-hmm. And it's you know, when I think of my own coming out. It wasn't a process where it was like I knew I was a lesbian and I was lying to everyone and then I decided to tell everyone. I actually didn't know that I was a lesbian. Mm-hmm. And I it took me a long time to incorporate because when I was growing up, no one ever said to me, You might be a lesbian. Yeah. I never went Wouldn't to the theater and saw, <laughs> you know, Disney shows that had a prince marrying a prince or a princess marrying a princess. Mm-hmm. And until that changes, no one is gonna grow up thinking that. Yeah. You know, it's as long as these these narratives are implanted in our head that are only opposite sex. Um, or becoming a nun, which was what I thought I was headed yeah, for. I yeah, I thought about that. I, I, that is a common thing. I think a lot of lesbians yeah. are like, well, like I don't want to marry a man, sanctioned. so I guess it's well, sure. yeah, exactly. It's the only it's the only other alternative, right? Yeah. To like kind of just escape heteronormativity at all. Yeah. Yeah. Low pay and helping yeah. others is yeah. like just irresistible. We're drawn to that. Um, but um, so you know, since it was in that time before, it's like we don't have you know, any declaration, like there's no declarations other than their declarations of love to each other. Yeah. And we know that they loved each other. And for for Susan, it was actually much more complicated because she married Emily's brother. I mean, she and Emily were in love first. She had to get married. There was no option for her not to. She tried to make a go of it as a school teacher, but they didn't pay you couldn't make enough to live on. Wow, um, even back then, huh? Yes. And um, <laughs> she actually for a while lived with this couple um, while she was school teaching. And then they had a baby and they were like, look, you really can't live here anymore. You you know, so she couldn't do it. She tried. She tried. Mm-hmm. And, um, and even then her teaching gig separated her from Emily um, so because they were in Baltimore and different places far away. Um, so when she... You know, when she married Austin, you know, that was a relationship. She had three children for for him. You know, like, I don't know how she thought about her relationship with Emily in her head. Mm -hmm, Like, I don't mm -hmm. know if she thought about her relationship with Emily as an an affair. Like, I've seen that in press stuff where affair has been said. Like, I don't don't know if they thought of it that way, really. Yeah. Um, I know... I do feel like Emily, maybe partially because she's a poet and poets are people who respect feeling. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
Emily seems to have understood herself a little better than Susan did, I mm-hmm. think. Um, so that's another complication is finding women's stories in history when the women themselves also were hiding them. Yeah. You know, so. Was there correspondence from um, Susan back? Well, the only three letters survive. And um, the other ones were destroyed, which says a lot, you know. Um, So, and of the ones that survive, okay, here's one. It goes, I intended to write you today, Emily, but the quiet has not been mine. I send you this lest I should have seemed to have turned from away from a kiss. If you suffered this past summer, I am sorry. I, Emily, bear a sorrow that I never uncover. If a nightingale sings with her breast against a thorn, why not we? When I can, I shall write, Sue. Whoa. That makes me feel really lazy for being like... (laughs) Hey, sorry, just saw this to a text message. <laughs> like, I got to get better I at need that. To step it up, Making, Sarah. you know, like, fixing that when I don't yeah. return to, when That's I don't so re- respond to a text. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, that letter gets me. And, well, now I'm, and like, then so that's mad what that you hear oh, there were destroyed there's, letters. But there's, but there's a chunk taken out of that letter, too. What? So, I mean. We need the FBI on this. <laughs> but, but, like I said, the to me, what was funnier Really, when I say funny, what, what was funnier were like the letters that were just, it's shocking. You read these letters and you're like, I don't understand. And and my, my dramaturg, Demar Golan, who's a professor at Yale, um, who, who actually was in the play version of Wild Nights with Emily 20 years ago, when she reread the script for the movie, it's so shocking that those letters are there. Like she'd read all those letters before. Yeah. And when mm-hmm. she, re- she was like, I don't understand this letter is out there. People can read this letter. Like, wait, is this a letter with the erasures restored? No, this is yeah. a letter that's just been sitting out there in its, its entirety. Wow. And it's just, it's interesting because the PR job done on Emily was so overwhelming. That yeah. miserable spinster, virginal, old maid, recluse, mm-hmm. loveless, blah, blah, blah. That when you would, people couldn't integrate the information they were getting from the poems and letters and understand them. Like they had this image and they couldn't, it was so, they were so indoctrinated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we actually found that when we were screening the film, because I screened the film in progress um, for groups of people for about a year in my apartment as we worked on it. And we'd have audiences and we'd have younger people, like college age people, and then we'd have older people. And no matter what we d- did, no matter what we put in the movie, Emily at a party, Emily running across, the older people would always be like recluse. Oh, she was a recluse. And the other yeah. people would be like, she wasn't recluse. I just saw her at a party. I saw yeah. her, you know, so mm-hmm. it was it was just so learned. Like it was such a learned, like there was so much that we had to do to undo it that at a certain point we thought like we can't, I don't know if we can make a movie dumb enough that people yeah. will shed this, you know, like <laughs> yeah. we can't, like, I'm hoping people watch this movie because it's set in the 1800s that this movie will have a long shelf life yeah. with the poems and everything. So I can't make it so dumb as to speak to where some people are now. I'm going to make this something that people can enjoy in the future. Yeah. And I'm going to assume that there will be a time in history where people have more more open minds and I'm, I can't can't dumb this down. Yeah. Well, what's great about the way that you do it is presenting the story from two different ways from 
the perspective of uh, the brother's lover. Mabel Todd. Yes, Mm -hmm. from Mabel Todd, uh, selling her story of it. And then in contrast, showing like what's really going on and what the story really Mm -hmm. is. And then you kind of get how that perception got created of who Emily Dickinson is. Yeah. I I like um, just kind of in this conversation, hearing the same terms over and over again, it, I remember being a kid and growing up and learning about women throughout history and the certain terms like spinster, reclusive, things that basically implied that these women were just these like hold up in their houses, not quite doing anything. It kind of makes you rethink what all that means. Like the term spinster to me, I read that now and I think like, oh, we need to dig into her life. I bet she was a lesbian. Right. You know, <laughs> right. like every time I just assume that. Because right. it's so so often, you know, you, you read, like, during Black History Month, I was reading about, um, I forgot her name at this, this moment, but she was, like, the first dean of, of an HBCU, but she lived with people pointing out, like, well, she had, a, you know, a roommate for, like, mm-hmm. 40 years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and people are just now acknowledging right. these relationships years later. And this is for, for gay men as well that, you know, throughout history that yeah. they'll say, like, oh, he lived with his friend for three decades right. or something. And it's like, why are we, we're like, but we're, it's so funny. It's it's right there. It's like the evidence was there the whole time, right. but historians and everyone just sort of comfortably concludes that they were some sort of platonic roommates. You right. Know? Well, there is a lot of collusion in these cases. And, and with, with this reason for Emily Dickinson was, um, people who had more inside information were afraid that if the public knew, especially about Emily and Kate, which was really hard to hide, Mm -hmm. that they would no longer, the reading public who loved that image of Emily Dickinson, who adored her, she was this woman, she didn't want anything, she didn't want fame, she didn't Mm -hmm. want people to read her poems. (laughs) Like if they found out who she was, that they wouldn't read her work anymore. And I think because they knew how much she wanted to have her work read. It was seen as a positive thing that they mm-hmm. were doing, that they were protecting her, her. Do you think they had good intention? I mean, is that generally the sentiment? They're like, well, this is we're doing I, it for this good reason? Um, it's, do I think they had good intentions? That's such an interesting question. I think they were trying to make it that she wouldn't, fall from the piece of fame that mm-hmm. she had achieved. Does, mm-hmm. does that make yeah. sense? Yeah. I mean, and if you can imagine, like no, someone said to me, I think at the screening at the center, no one gets through grade school without hearing an Emily Dickinson poem. Yeah. And when the teacher presents that poem, they also talk about Emily Dickinson's life. And imagine if in school they were like, she was in love with this woman, madly, madly in love with Susan, and she and Susan had a relationship they loved each other. They were in love with each other. But it also was an intellectual relationship. And Susan was her reader and her muse and the person who um, was her intellectual companion as mm-hmm. well. Um, one of the things um, that um, Martha Nell Smith, uh, who worked on the movie, said, which was very interesting to her and me, was when she first started to do this work on Dickinson, she said that she found there was more resistance on the idea that Susan was... Emily's most important reader and critic than there was on the romantic side. Mm, like people okay. were more thr- like, oh, it couldn't, she wasn't a, pro- no, it was, it was the 
edited, Higginson, the Atlantic Monthly editor, who Brett Gelman knocks out of the park. He's just fucking awesome. Can I yeah. swear on this? Absolutely. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So, um, but anyway, that the idea that Susan was her, the person she, who influenced her work and, you know, had such a big effect on her, Martha said that that, had more that got more blowback in the academic community than the idea that they were romantically involved. Yeah, which I think is very interesting. Mm-hmm. I often wonder if, like, when we sort of revisit history and and not like rewrite it, but just kind of reveal something new about it. That like it seems to me that people in academia are extremely. It's just really hard to like change the narrative. It is hard, but I think it has to do with the fact that. I think there's a real line, and I'm saying for our studio audience, or not our studio audience, <laughs> um, you people Something are younger, like younger yeah. people. <laughs> there's a line when, for people who grew up uh, bef- when there was no gay marriage and people who are coming of age and in college after gay marriage was passed, mm-hmm. there is a real difference. The times that we lived in, were like science fiction. Yeah. Um, and I spoke to a theater full of professors, and I said to them, you know, the thing to understand about young people in college today is that they don't have all the, all the um, stigma that, that we had heard of around gayness. They don't have that. Even a young straight male is willing to, or is even interested in reading a poem that's written by a lesbian without thinking, oh, I, th- I can't read that. That's mm-hmm. not going to say anything for me. I don't care about that. There's a real interest in hearing each other's stories among young people. Mm-hmm. Um, and Bernie Sanders was on The Daily Show the other day saying, like, millennials and young people today, they are so committed. They're so against sexism and racism and homophobia. And it's a real, totally different world now. Yeah. So all the reasons that... Um, people had to hide certain things, including, you know, when the book came out about Kate um, in 1951, that was during the McCarthy scare Mm -hmm. when homosexuality was equated with communism. So there were real reasons why people couldn't say these things, you know, like reasons of losing your job and, and, you know, being Even like tried being jailed yeah, at some point. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So it's there was it was really scary. And um certainly Emily and Susan, you know, in their own time, um, you know, like they would have been like beheaded, you know what I mean? Mm, like, right. like as it was, Emily what had to use her, her it was a big deal that Emily's father let her skip morning prayers and use that time to write. Like she had to negotiate what she asked for. Mm-hmm. Do, do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like yeah. she couldn't spend her capital on other things. Like she really had to fight for her writing time. Um, so it's very interesting, but it's really, um, there There was a world of shame attached. Yeah. Um, really, like just being gay was just the worst thing you could be in the world. So when people loved Emily Dickinson, they felt like she can't, she can't be that thing. Yeah. Yeah. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. 
Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. So Molly Shannon plays Emily Dickinson in in the movie, and a a couple things I want to know. Were people who, who didn't know you shocked? about the casting because obviously Molly's a, a comedian, a character actor. Um, and then also was there any kind of preparation uh, that she had to like undergo for playing this like very nuanced queer role? Um, well, Molly is so wonderful. She, she and I uh, went to college together and I directed her in a comedy show where she first created her character that she wrote that was an early incarnation of Mary Catherine Gallagher. That's amazing. Um, That's awesome. So I was there at the moment <laughs> wow. of its inception, yes. and it was electric. Yeah. yeah. It was just amazing. Yeah. So I had always wanted to work with her again, and I had to wait until I had a part that was equal to her stature. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And I have to say that... Um, I, I knew she should be Emily Dickinson. I thought if Molly Shannon plays Emily Dickinson, people will finally understand who Emily Dickinson was. Yeah. Um, because Molly, as a presence, brings such warmth, mm-hmm. but she has an incredibly unique mind. Mm-hmm. Um, that's an almost unactable attribute. Like you can't have a brain that you don't. You know, you can't act mm-hmm. being really smart if you aren't, but she's beyond that. There's mm-hmm. something visionary in her. Um, and so, I mean, she took the poems, she she read the poems, She we talked about different things, but she really sat inside the script and asked me about things and questioned things. And when we were shooting, we would talk about different things. Um, but she, I feel like she... You know, to do to make a low budget movie when you're a professional, um, it's it is kind of grueling. Mm-hmm. Like she, there was no dressing room for her. She was just sitting on this bed with like four other people in between her scenes being <laughs> shot. And I, honestly, she deserves some kind of humanitarian award <laughs> because to be that like in that yeah. br- brutal summer heat with like seven petticoats and hoop skirts and, mm-hmm. you know, all that bullshit, you know, yep. the, yeah. the, what do they call these things? I'm blanking on them. The corsets. The corsets. And the, yeah. and the, you oh, know, there was imagine. this one scene. The costumes are great. We sprayed her yeah. with a hose during this one scene. I ended up cutting it from the movie. Um, and she has not breathed. She's never said, Madeline, you sprayed me with a hose for <laughs> 40 <laughs> minutes. <cut> it. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so it's, she's, it's really amazing because it also, so makes people who maybe would never be interested in seeing a movie about Emily Dickinson or be interested in seeing a movie, honestly, with um, queer content in it. It yeah. makes them interested in going. Mm-hmm. So it was really a gift that she gave to me 
Um, and I think to women's history in this way to oh for sure to do what she did, which was just you know so generous. Yeah, and she was so great in it. And one thing that stands out to me, like I'm, I'm always thinking about uh, how films that are like a queer story that's mm-hmm. written and directed by a lesbian versus somebody who's not and especially like men and the differences and how that plays out. And sometimes you feel like um, a love story between two women feels like it's made for the male gaze. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and this one, like absolutely not, obviously. <laughs> uh, but the the love between them is so beautiful. And like the relationship, it's like, mm-hmm. I don't know, it plays out in just like such this beautiful, realistic, like heartfelt, manner where I feel like in other hands it could they would have like I think maybe that's the way to avoid the male gaze is to make something beautiful about love yeah (laughs) because they're just they're like nah nothing there for me yeah (laughs) that would be the project they would turn it down yes right um it's it's um I mean you know I I do think that anyone of any gender can direct any story sure but I did feel very much the obligation to get this right. Yeah. Well, that, um, anyone can do it, but the outcome is going to be different. And I right. think and some what people they can care pick up about, on. What they care about is going to be different. Yes. yes. And yeah. there were certain things I really cared about. I really wanted people to see how Emily Dickinson sent her poems out while she was alive. I mean, because that's one of the big myths that, you know, she didn't try, she didn't want to. And to understand that she tried and to understand, you know, she sent 90 poems to mm-hmm. that editor of the Atlantic Monthly, 90. I mean, that is someone who's trying to get published. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, to understand that she was rejected in her lifetime actually can serve to give people hopefulness because mm-hmm. they can feel like this also happened to Emily Dickinson, you know, and I'm trying to, and she tried and she persevered, so. Yeah. I'm trying to think of some some other movies I saw this year, like uh, well, Mar- Mary Queen of Scots is directed by. Oh my god, so awesome! Yeah. I can't believe you're bringing that up because <laughs> Christmas Day, I went from Roma. Deb Margolin and I, my friend who teaches a professor at Yale, we first we watched Roma, and then we took a cab and watched Mary Queen of Scots, and I thought I don't think I've ever seen a better argument for female directors. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it was a side of like those stories yeah. that I had never seen before. And I'm like, I don't know if I'm crazy, but I think it's because it was. Oh, totally. <laughs> okay. I mean, and I was like, mm-hmm. of course, that makes totally sense. Total, of course, those queens were harassed for being women. Yeah. Like, and, and I, I mean, and I was surprised. It, yeah. And I was like, wow. Like, first of all, you learn something new about the world. It adds to what we understand about the world. Yeah. Which is what cinema can do. Mm-hmm. Um, with with Roma, I felt like that character, that the main character, to me, <laughs> you know what's great about being an independent film director? I can say whatever I want <laughs> about movies because I'm never going to be at a party with that guy. Yeah. You know, like, it's just never going to happen. So I can just say what I think. Yeah, <laughs> but, exactly. That's great. But I mean, it was really interesting because he gaps the moment of... I mean, she got pregnant. Was it a decision to get pregnant? Did he? Did the guy pressure her? Did she not know what causes pregnancy? He doesn't even have that moment on screen. Mm-hmm. Um, so she becomes, sorry, That's not all right. this. She becomes kind of a cipher character to us. 
Um, and I feel like a woman director wouldn't have gapped that moment. We would have understood something about the predict- predicament that she was in because the choice led to that predicament yeah, or the non-choice or whatever it was. But instead she becomes this other character that we pity and look at, not someone we're with. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you go see Mary Queen. It was just amazing. I was like, I can't believe it. it you know, I just... I recommend that movie so so strongly. I mean, when um, I enjoyed it so much. Say your, how do you say your name? Sorsha. Sorsha. Yeah. yeah. When she walks, when she's about to get her head cut off, yeah. And she walks on that platform, and the executioner is afraid of her. Yeah. yeah. It I takes love those that. steps backwards. It was so amazing. Yeah. It was. It was great. And at a time when everybody was talking about uh, the favorite, which was also great, mm-hmm. but. Uh, I didn't hear many people talking about Mary Queen of Scots, and I saw those movies back to back and mm. um, enjoyed that a, a lot. I also read an article recently, and I wish I could remember her name. And it was an interview with a female cinematographer, um, just about bias in cinematography mm. and f- um, depth of field and focusing. How mm. uh, a lot of movies will focus on the person speaking the line, but the high proportion of that is men. Mm-hmm. And specifically, like white men, hmm. instead of um, having like a, a deeper focus. I I don't know. I yeah, yeah, that's so sh- funny. Should that's find look it up, but it was very interesting. Mm-hmm. So that like women and people of color are often blurred in shots, hmm. and there's no need to to rack or whatever I the terminology. I hate rack focus. Rack okay. focus. So the so yeah, it was an anti. Yeah. It was there's an like anti rack focus. <laughs> there's a picture. Imagine a picture, and two people are sitting in it. One person's further back. A rack focus is when one person's in focus and then the other person becomes in focus and the first person comes out of focus. Yeah. I hate that so much. I hate rack focus. I like to see everybody because that's yes. like life. You have yeah. a frame. You see everyone. I, I'm Right now I'm looking at you two. Everyone, I can see all three of you. There's no one who's a blur right now. Yeah. And so in trying to create an experience that's like life, I like to see all the people. But they're like every, almost every cinematographer, I don't know what it is. Like I think I'd have to like... Every cinematographer all hates me, but um, <laughs> but secondly, they all just like rack. Fo- I mean, maybe that's the first cool trick they learn, but it's like so Probably. hard to get them to stop. From well, that. now I now that I know this. This is my now official opinion about rack focus forever for the rest of my life. Mm. Now that I know what it's called. Yeah. I am adopting your opinion and I will never change it. <laughs> right. No, well, I, I think the cinematographer was saying that it's like because so many cinematographers are, are male and yeah. it's like, yeah. it's almost like this. It's like almost the, a subconscious decision that well, everyone makes. Yeah. And like a lie that's been told that this is the way you have to focus or this is what good cinematography looks yeah, like when yeah. that's not the case at all. And you don't have to I do mean, it that way. I mean, it's interesting too, because with digital everyone is always trying to make digital look like film and they yeah. think nothing makes something, nothing makes it look more like film than rack focus. Yeah. Um, but it's like, why make it look like film? It's not film. Mm-hmm. Like video has great things about it. Like it's flat, like life. Like yeah. I met, you know, like I see, like I said, I see everyone right now in this room. It's <laughs> yeah. so exciting to see all of you. <laughs> so I think that women, especially queer women, have often not gone to the cinema because the cinema has failed them so many times. Yes. And I'm asking you to show up, Mm -hmm. to show up opening weekend, to drive those numbers up so that people see it's, there's an audience for these stories. Yes. Because that's what drives every decision to make a movie. Is there an audience for it? 
and, um, you know, bring your cats. It's fine. <laughs> and... Please come we will. this weekend. I mean, we're we're doing. I I don't. We're we're in New York and L.A. We're having Q and As and everything. And I'll be. I'm doing like probably ten Q and As this weekend. So I'm really hoping that you'll you'll come. Yeah, and I mean, I I want to see it again. Even like oh, after yeah, watching going, it, and yeah. then after hearing the Q and A, I'm like, I need to watch it again and like see what other nuances I catch yeah. and just to have the the poetry and the the words of the letters sink in. Um, what, one last question for you. Uh, what kind of sacrifices did you have to make to get this movie made? Because you, you talk about having this play in 1999. Yeah. So like being committed uh-huh. to this script for 20 years, like... Yeah. Tell it was, a, a it was, I mean, making the movie was incredibly hard. Yeah. Um, and shooting it, we shot over several years and, you know, we got funding in piecemeal places. And um, at one point, I, I would say I lost over 30 pounds. Um, it was really grueling. Um, and I, and at, we, we didn't know if we were going to get to the end, but we did. Yeah. Um, and so it was very difficult. Um, a lot of people had told us there was no way we could make this movie. They read the script and they're like, this isn't makeable. You won't be able to make this in, in, in our budget range. So the fact that we pulled it off um, is, is amazing. Yeah. So. It's great. I'm so excited. Uh, listeners, go see the movie and then email us and tell us your thoughts. We'd mm-hmm. love to hear them. And uh, Madeline, do you have social media or can people follow? Um, I guess I'm plug? on the dreaded Facebook, but I mean, I still learn in the other social media. <laughs> That's fine. I can Stay call away from Uber. Her. I'm on Uber. Oh, great. <laughs> Find her I on Uber. Go see the movie. Madeline, thank you so thank much you for coming so much. and sharing all this with thank us. You, this it's great. fascinating. We love this. Mm-hmm. Our listeners are going to love it. Awesome. Great. Thank Thank you you so much. Now it's time for our listener question. And the subject line, I believe on this one, was teenage love sucks or teenage romance sucks, which agree. Yep. (laughs) Yeah, that's a good thesis statement to lead in. All right. So this listener says, okay, so first off, I would like to say thanks for helping me realize my relationship of about a year wasn't really that healthy for anyone. Wow. We're really glad that we can do that for you, listener. I'm glad I can do that for anyone else. Yeah. (laughs) Oh my God. Yeah. If anybody recommends a podcast where Sarah will listen to her own advice, uh, (laughs) let me know. That'd be great. Um, I just sort of ignored the fact that I wasn't happy in it. And after listening to your podcast, I started to see the red flags that my young brain completely ignored. Now that I'm out of it, I feel miles better than I did in it. Uh, Now that I can move on with my life, I graduated in four to five months. So this is high school. Uh, but she literally won't stop texting me on multiple apps, basically dumping her feelings on me. It's gotten to... This is relatable content for one of us. Uh, It's gotten to the point where I'm just getting so annoyed at the whole situation because I feel like she's trying to just guilt me back into the relationship. I want to move on, not specifically into a new relationship. Fuck that shit. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. This is sounds like a... Oh, yeah. She got some aggression out on Gmail today. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but 
just living the last of my high school life to the fullest without having somebody constantly writing five paragraph texts uh, on what was good in the relationship and how they could change uh, just to get back into the relationship. I guess my question is, what in the living fuck do I do without sounding like a complete and utter asshole? You know what? There are a couple strategies There's for this. There's a couple things here. Um, first of all, you could set up an elaborate ruse in which you disappear on a cruise ship and you start a new identity somewhere else in another country. But she has to graduate high school, Sarah. Oh, true. Okay, so don't fake your own death. No. Ugh, back to the drawing board. That um, only works after graduation. It does only work after graduation. And it's it's logistically, it's a nightmare. But anyway, yeah. I, oh man, you know what? I feel your pain. Um, I've been on the receiving end pretty recently of not necessarily a romantic person, but a person who tends to send extremely long uh, messages and that actually has a way of sort of chipping at you psychologically a little bit. Like it's actually super fucking annoying to get inundated with text, email, you know, you said it's cross platform. I assume you mean like Instagram DMs, that kind of thing. This other person, even though the physical relationship is over, they are still demanding a lot emotionally. Yes. That's what this is about. Emotional labor is something that we don't often consider when you're talking about communication and just because you're not sitting in front of someone speaking to them doesn't mean that you're not doing work that you're not doing, you know, labor to, to like even reading that kind of stuff is labor. Yeah. And and even in a breakup scenario, so it's easy to be like, yeah, we're not going to, you know, have sex anymore, make out or whatever Mm -hmm. the relationship was. You're not going to do that. Uh, but then that person still expects you to be that one person they go to. Or mm-hmm. in this scenario, they're trying to guilt you or manipulate you into getting back together. Now, I was in a scenario like this when I was uh, in my relationship that I started in college that went for a few years and beyond college. And I ended the relationship and this other person, they wanted the relationship to continue, even though we'd broken up multiple times over the course of this and kept talking about, like you're saying, the good things and kept, uh, you know, like I moved out and went to stay at my mom's and they drove and showed up at my mom's place because they thought if they could just talk to me. And what I did was lie, which normally I don't recommend lying. And I said, look, right now, I can't even be friends with you, but maybe in a year, I think we both need space, but maybe in one year we can be friends again. Just give me this year. Mm -hmm. And then they can kind of take that hope for getting back together and put it on a shelf. And then they'll probably forget about it. Yeah, that's true. In my case, they didn't. In a year, I got a message that said, hey, what's up? And then I was like, I'm still ignoring you. That's why I'm just kind of, I'm kind of in the, I'm kind of in camp, cut it off. Like I'm, you know. Just, just be the complete and utter so, asshole. Exactly. Yeah, Sometimes be like, you have I don't to want you in my nuclear life. because that person is just not going to give up. It's not going to change anything. But what if they're in the same end. AP bio class? <laughs> True. I mean, you are kind of, you're sort of screwed if you're in class, literally, if you have to see this person, if you have to see someone on a daily basis, whether it's for school or work or whatever, it's, it's, that does add a layer of difficulty, but you are at the end of your school career, your high school career right now. So yeah. there is obviously some sort of like light at the end of the tunnel as far as not seeing this person anymore. But this will get a little easier as you get more dating experience under your belt. Yeah. So 
I know this is easier said than done, but sometimes you just have to tell someone to leave you the fuck alone. Yeah. Because I think that what this person's doing is demanding, again, it's demanding that emotional labor from you, demanding something that is taking, is chipping away energy from your life that, like you said, you want to enjoy the last, you know, this last bit of uh, high school and, you know, your friends and things like that before you start this next chapter of your life. And it's just annoying. It's annoying and it's actually, like, invasive and at a certain point it becomes, like, fucking harassment you know if someone just won't leave you alone like it's okay to if whatever that makes you feel that's the reality and if it makes you feel like you're being like harassed or just annoyed to the point that it's like you know interrupting vital parts of your life it's it you're not an asshole for literally saying listen you have to leave me alone and if that means uh, it's a simple tap on your phone to block someone or to block them on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and those kind of things. Yeah. Um, I'm pretty sure block, you, can, block, block. you can block people on your actual phone itself. Yep. And, you know, you might have to do that. Sometimes you have to just blow up the bridge because, like, I don't, I don't foresee this person being, uh, you know, someone who can even have a healthy friendship with you in the future without bringing up all the dating stuff or, your, you know, stuff like that. I, I just, I, I don't see any, especially now at this point in your life when you're about to go, th- when you're about to, you know, and one thing, end high school and start whatever is next in your life. I can tell you right now, I had a lot of friends in high school. I was very fortunate. I had a very rich, at the time, fulfilling social life. I am in contact with precisely two of those people now. You're going to make new friends. You're going to meet new people. You are going to hold on to some of these relationships, but not a lot of them. Most people don't hold on to a lot of high school friendships. And that doesn't mean they weren't great for this chapter in your life. It just means that you're going to just your your life is generally going to progress beyond that. Um, that all that is to say is I, I don't think that you're losing anything vital by telling this person you have to leave me alone. Yeah, like, it's too much, and you don't owe them anything. You don't owe anyone anything, but, especially but after a, a breakup. This is a common breakup Very tactic common. of somebody who's like clingy and. It might seem heartless and mean to do. And you know what? I gave my mom this advice. So it does it doesn't end. My mom is uh obviously older than me. <laughs> and I'm not gonna say how old, but she is an older woman. And she went through a breakup a couple years ago now. The guy wouldn't leave her alone, kept calling, kept leaving stuff at her doorstep, and she kept I guess like sort of engaging in it. I'm I'm just like block him. Yeah. Don't don't there are say, steps you can take. Yeah. I'm like, you don't have to pick up when he calls. And she's like, Well, I don't want to be cruel. I'm like, there's nothing cruel about that because he's not respecting your boundaries. Mm-hmm. That's what's cruel. What he's doing is cruel. You saying stop and ignoring him and shutting shutting him down, you're doing him a favor because he can't move on. Yeah. If if he keeps thinking that, you know, my mom's going to give him a, a yeah. chance again. As soon as you show a glimmer of hope to those people. They'll hold on to it and they won't let go. And I'm yeah. glad you said boundaries. I think that's like generally what I what I was uh, what trying to get at. But like setting boundaries and sticking to them for yourself. Yeah. The younger you are when you start doing that, it's going to make life any a relationship. whole hell of a lot easier for you as you get older. Yeah. By the time you're, you know, I'm 33 and I'm still struggling with, establishing and keeping those boundaries with people. And again, not even always in a romantic sense. And sometimes you'll have friendships that become completely fucking overwhelming and you have to know when to not respond to someone or, you know, set some sort of emotional labor 
regulatory boundary in your life with with the and it's and it's difficult. It's not easy, but the but the the, the sooner you start doing that, start you know respecting your own boundaries, establishing them and enforcing them, you're going to have a much easier maybe not easier, but you'll be able to navigate the dating world um, in a much healthier way mm-hmm. as you as you get older. And bear in mind, women are the ones who are conditioned to think that they're being rude by telling someone to leave them alone. Right. Men don't have this problem. We are conditioned to think like, well, I don't want to be mean. No, it's not fucking being mean. It's, it's standing up for yourself. You yeah. know, that's just so throw that idea out as early as possible. So go enjoy the rest of high school. Block her on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and your phone. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, that's step one. Also tell her to listen to this episode of Diking Out. She can subscribe <laughs> on iTunes. Uh, Patreon. She can rate us five stars. Don't don't hate the messenger. Right. <laughs> whoever you are. And tell her to just become obsessed with us. It's fine. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> she can she can uh, become a patron on Patreon. Mm-hmm. Patreon.com slash Diking Out. And then she can leave as many comments as she wants on her posts. Yes, that's fine. And she can send us messages. We don't care. Yeah, we're really it's good fine. at not responding to messages. So <laughs> at least I am. I was going to say, I, you're really I'm good pretty about sure it. I'm I tried like, to get to everybody. Yeah. <laughs> For those of you who do, do who DM me and I don't respond, I'm not doing that. Uh, I'm not doing that intentionally. It's just that I, I have a lot of a lot of like internet things on in into my eyeballs all day long, but I D- do DM, deeply appreciate your messages. DM the diking out account and I'll yeah. write back pretending to be Sarah. <laughs> if it's a Sarah specific thing. Yeah. And then if, if I can get her attention, I will, I will try and, yeah. uh, and let you know. Um, <laughs> Thank you so much for diking out with us. And like Madeline said, uh, supporting these kind of movies is so important. So it's only out, it's only going to be out in New York and LA first, but hopefully it picks up wider distribution and you can see it at a theater near you or when it uh, is released, buy it, rent it. Yep. Show. It. Yeah. Yeah. Let everybody know. Wild uh, Nights with Emily. Wild Nights with Emily. It's so important. Follow us at Diking Out on social media. You can follow me at TGI Carolyn. And I'm at the Sarah York. If you like to be ignored. And <laughs> thanks for diking out with us this week. Dike out with us again. Bye. Bye. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics, and sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot-button issues, and it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.